Genesis 2, verse 4 to 17. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created. When the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, and no shrub of the field had yet appeared on the earth, and no plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth, and there was no man to work the ground. But streams came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. The Lord God formed the man from the dust of the earth and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. And the Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. A river watering the garden flowed from Eden. From there was separated into four headwaters. The name of the first is the Pishon. It winds through the entire land of Havilah, where there is gold. The gold of that land is good. Aromatic resin and onyx are also there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It winds through the entire land of Cush. The name of the third river is the Tigris. It runs along the east side of the Ashur. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat of it, you will surely die. Revelation 22, 1-6 Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing twelve crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will serve him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them their light, and they will reign forever and ever. The angel said to me, These words are trustworthy and true. The Lord, the God of the spirits and of the prophets, sent his angel to show his servants the things that must soon take place. Let me lead us in prayer as we begin. Our loving Father, who doesn't want to live in paradise? Of course we all do. Help us to understand what that means biblically, rightly. Understand the truth of your paradise. Would you help us understand these passages from the scriptures? But more than that, would they change our hearts? Would you do that by your spirit? So that understanding rightly your destiny for mankind, we'll live for you here and now. Amen. 
Now, I don't know if um, Coldplay do it for you uh, or not. I'm sort of middle-aged bloke, so obviously I'm kind of wired to like Coldplay. They're my sort of band. Um, but uh, you may or may not have observed, they've, uh, recently the new album is on its way. And uh, last week they released the second single from that album, and it was called, if you're as trendy as I am, you'll know. Um, it's called Paradise. Paradise. And it really, it's a song of longing. A song of loss and longing. So uh, the verse... When she was just a girl, she expected the world, but it flew away from her reach, so she ran away in her sleep. She dreams of para, para, paradise, repeat several times, para, 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 paradise, and on and on. And that's the song, as, as far as I can gather. But it's a song of longing and regret. She, she expected the world here and now. She expected everything to be brilliant, but then that was just out of reach, as it is for most people, eventually. And so she dreams of something better. She dreams that there's a paradise to come in some way or another. And that's entirely normal and natural as human beings. Most people have that sort of longing at some time. Now, many people will be able to stave it off for quite some time and uh, try and build paradise here on earth. Uh, some people try and do that literally. My little bit of wiki research revealed to me that uh, there are 17 towns in the U.S. called Paradise. 17. Now, one of them's in the American Virgin Islands. That probably is not bad. Um, but they're not the only ones. So uh, just to be fair, there are two towns in Canada called Paradise, two towns in Australia called Paradise. There's one town in the UK called Paradise, and then one suburb of Newcastle referred to as Paradise. <laughs> now, without causing offence to uh, the uh, uh, origins, yes, all right, the, uh, those who hail from Newcastle, that seems to be stretching the usage of the word a little bit um, for a suburb of Newcastle. Some people literally try and build paradise uh, here on earth, and probably that means they can bump the price of the houses up a little bit. For others, though, it's, well, you can try and create your paradise. You may be some kind of multi-millionaire who can buy an island and create some kind of paradise for a while. You may be a sort of more mortal, mere mortal like many of us and go on holiday and just hope you have a week or two weeks of paradise. But then, you know, reality dawns a little bit as it does. So most people, they may try and build paradise here on earth for a little while, but eventually, eventually they realize, well, it doesn't, it doesn't really last. Perfection is just slightly unattainable here and now. It's just out of reach. And so she dreams of para, para, paradise. It's normal. It's normal human experience that we would long for something more. In Genesis chapter 2, where we are this evening, here is life in the paradise of God. Another word isn't actually used in Genesis chapter 2, but the book of Revelation referring back, particularly Revelation 2.7, refers back to it as paradise. Here is paradise in the Garden of Eden. That's what we're looking at this evening. Now, if you are just joining us, um, we're really tearing through the book of Genesis. Uh, this is our fourth week, so we've had three weeks in chapter one, and uh, we're now really picking up the pace uh, as we tear into chapter two. But actually, we're spending most of our term in uh, these first four chapters of Genesis, looking at some of the fundamentals of life on this planet. And uh, we start a new section, it may not be obvious to you, but we've said before that uh, chapter one, verse one, to chapter two, verse three, is one account of creation. And then chapter two, verse four to three, twenty-four is a second account of creation. They're not contradictory. You need to hold them together. Jesus does. Matthew 19, he refers to both of them as being true. 
So you can't ignore one and say they disagree. At first, they may appear to contradict slightly, but you can certainly bring them together. But chapter 1, verse 1 to chapter 2, verse 3, as we said, looking at that, its focus is, or was, God created. That's the big idea. God created. That's 1, 1 to 2, 3. This section we're spending the next few weeks in, chapter 2, verse 4 to 3, 24, it answers one simple question, really. What went wrong? Because you may have observed we don't live in paradise. You've probably noticed that. What went wrong? That is the real thrust of this section. So we start a new section. Chapter 2, verse 4. Side one. Chapter 2, verse 4. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created. Uh, that's... This is the account of, that's the Genesis marker for starting a new section. Obviously, when Genesis was produced, they didn't have chapters and verses. So uh, eight times in the book you get this. These are the accounts of so, uh, chapter 2, verse 4. It comes a little later. You can click on chapter 5, verse 1. This is the account of. And you get a new section all about the floods. Chapter 10, verse 1. You get a new section. These are the accounts of. So this is all one section here. And you get a new title for God. So in the chapter 1, 1 to 2, 3, God is God. Um, But in chapters two and three, he is the Lord God. The Lord is his relational name, personal name, because much of this section is about how he is in relationship with Adam and Eve and how he'll act to or need to act to save Adam and Eve. This section is all about what went wrong. You can see it physically. These things uh, appeal or, or work for some people and uh, not for others. But visually, the, uh, the chapters 2 and 3, they work a bit like this. Technically, it's called a chiasm or sandwich, you want to call it. But it works a bit like this, focusing towards the center. So just that uh, you see A matches A, B matches B. So to, you get creation of man, we look at tonight, 2, 4 to 17. That's paralleled in chapter 3 with the punishment of man. Creation of woman, 2, 18 to 25. That's paralleled in chapter 3 with the punishment of woman. Uh, the conversation of the serpent and the woman, three, one to five, that's parallel between conflict between the serpent and the woman. And right in the center is sin. The first sin, where sin enters the world. Because this section is really all about what went wrong. What went wrong? Why we're not in paradise? So there's lots of details, and, and next week we'll spend lots of time thinking about marriage and what that looks like, and there's lots we can learn. But the main thrust of this section is... We're not in paradise. What went wrong? Okay. So that's mainly what we're going to be thinking on tonight. Three things then. Uh, three things we look at. Uh, the Lord placed man in paradise. Mankind was meant to spread paradise. The Lord required obedience in paradise. And then um, we'll draw some implications from that. Okay, let's have a go. Uh, first then, verses four to nine. The Lord placed man in paradise. So verse 4 is a bit of an intro. Verses 5 and 6 are the backdrop. But then really verses 7 to 9 are the action. God in action. It's all about God here. Do you see this? So verse 7, the Lord God, he does everything. Okay, he's, he's action man. Uh, verse 7, the Lord God formed the man. He breathed into his nostrils. Verse 8, he planted a garden. Verse 8, he put the man in the garden. Uh, verse 9, he made all things grow. God does everything. Again, God made this place. Just a little tangent. We, we talked about this uh, a few weeks ago. But here, this, the rest of the Bible views this, Genesis 2 and 3, as historical. This is not just a little fairy story 
which explains how we are where we are. All of the rest of the Bible, the book of Genesis, Jesus in the New Testament, well, that writes in the New Testament, describe these as real events. Now, they may be stylized. I mean, the way God is described as forming man from the ground like a potter playing with clay. It may be a stylized way of describing things, but it is true historically. The rest of the Bible insists on that. So uh, back in week one, we talked a little bit about the creation of mankind. And um, I won't go through it all again, but I, I see no reason why, personally, why uh, biological evolutionary theory is not compatible with what we read in Genesis 1 and 2. But you have to insist, uh, as a Christian, if you're a Christian, that at this point, God does something different. Because when it comes to mankind, he breathes his spirit into him. He breathes his spirit or life into man. So I'm very, very happy indeed to run with evolutionary theory. Personally, Christians disagree, and, and we can disagree on that. That's okay. Personally, I'm happy to run with that. But you have to say biblically, at this point, God does something differently. He breathes his spirit into mankind. Okay, two things just to draw out, though, the, um, of this uh, first thing. The Lord placed man in paradise. Two little things. One, it's a perfect environment. It is perfect, the garden that God creates in Eden. So verse 9. The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It is perfect. Every tree is both, verse 9, pleasing to the eye and good for food. So God is both creative and practical in his perfect paradise. That's why we still have a legacy of that. We still have the slightly bonkers trees. We still have monkey puzzle trees. What's the point of them? They just look fun, don't they? Uh, we still have enormous trees, giant redwoods. We have cy cypress trees. How do they not fall over? God made pleasant trees just to look at, but practical things as well. It's paradise. Practically so. So imagine if paradise was somehow imported into 21st century London and you opened your door and on, on the way to the tube tomorrow, your five minute walk or whatever it is to the tube, and uh, you walk through paradise and you know, your street is slightly transformed and uh, all sorts of useful trees are there. And uh, you don't bother having breakfast because you come out the front door and grab a mango off this one and some grapes off this one. And uh, bizarre, even the Brussels sprouts are delightful, weird, because it's paradise. And everything is both pleasing to the eye and good to eat. It's perfect. The environment is just perfect. It doesn't get any better. Perfect environment. But perfect also relationship. The second thing. Perfect relationship. The writer highlights two trees in uh, verse 9. There's the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. We'll come to the second one in a moment. But the tree of life here, that is simply relationship with God. There is nothing magical about eating from the tree of life. It is not a magic tree. It is not like the philosopher's stone. You get it, you rub it, or whatever you do to the philosopher's stone. You get it and you have eternal life. It's not magic fruit. God is the one who gives life. So this tree is a sign of being in relationship with God. That's how it's used elsewhere in the Bible. It comes up two other times in the book of Proverbs on three occasions, in the book of Revelation on a couple of occasions. And there, in the book of Proverbs, the tree of life gives you wisdom to live. In the book of Revelation, the tree of life means you, you walk in the presence of God. You have access to him. So all this tree of life is, it's a sign of relationship with God. 
It's a sign of that. In some senses, you could say it's a bit like a wedding ring. I have a wedding ring. I, I wear it. It's a, I can't get it off. Um, that's a good thing, isn't it? That's good. But uh, I, wear a, I wear a wedding ring as a sign of marriage. Now, if I threw my wedding ring away, what am I saying? I don't care about the marriage. Maybe I'm not in a marriage anymore. It's just a sign. I won't do that. That would be difficult. The... Um, uh, uh, The tree, it's just a sign of being in relationship with God. A sign of being in communion with him. Nothing magical about the tree of life, but it does highlight a perfect relationship. If you can't eat from the tree, that means that your relationship with God is broken. As will happen in the next chapter, in Genesis chapter 3. So this place then, it's perfection. Perfect environment, perfect relationship. Now, we still get hints of that, even here and now, just hints. Many of us would have been to a place with some people, and we've had a little taste for a small period of time of just a wonderful, wonderful time. If you haven't, don't worry, there's there's eternity in the new creation, and everything will be more beautiful. So you can, you know, if you never see the Great Barrier Reef this lifetime, don't worry, it'll be better in the next. But... um, uh, we had some time. I think for myself, I can think vividly, 20 years ago, I mean, that's a bit sad, isn't it, going back that way, but 20 years ago, I trekked around um, Central America with some friends, and uh, we'd, we'd worked for a few uh, months helping a church, and then we trekked around on holiday. And at the end, we had three days in a national park in Costa Rica, and it was sensational. On the beach, white sand, um, we just stayed in these rickety old huts, but you didn't really need anything. It was so warm and pleasant. It's a national park, incredible foliage. You know, you'd wake up and, oh, hello, Mr. Parrot. You're very colorful as he sort of just jumped across your bedding. These extraordinary lizards of multicolors. It was amazing. What should we do for food? Let's just go and grab some fish from the sea. Let's just go and grab coconuts literally off a tree. It was extraordinary. And I was there with two great Christian friends, and we were just about to come back to the UK. We read the scriptures, and we prayed, and we made resolutions. Life will be different when we go back home. And just for about three days, it was amazing. It was truly amazing. You think, wow. And you'll go back to work, etc., etc. It's just a hint. It's just the end of paradise. The paradise of God. Perfect. Perfect relationships. Perfect environment. Glorious. Is what we were made for. Uh, the Lord made, sorry, placed man in paradise. Second thing, briefly, uh, this is a bit different. Uh, verses 10 to 14, mankind was meant to spread paradise. Now, this may not be immediately obvious, but the, these verses, the writer goes off at a complete tangent, if I dare put that in the scriptures that way. So verses 4 to 9, God does this, God does this, God does this. Verses 10 to 14, There is a river, it flows along. And then verse 15, the Lord God comes in and says, do this, do this. And you think, you what? What what is this? This is extraordinary. It's like, um, imagine you're watching a a, a, a sports commentator, and it's rugby at the moment, it's the Rugby World Cup, and the commentator's saying, oh, in England, back in their own 22, and a young spins one out to Wilkinson. Oh, that's a lovely break. Oh, he's gone through. Oh, he's broken one tackle. Oh, he spins it out to Tim. Oh, it's glorious. They're up to the 22. The longest river in New Zealand... (laughs) is the, the Waikato, I think, something like that. It's 400, what is it? I can't remember, the Waco. It's 425 kilometers long. It enters the sea just outside Auckland. And 
Ashton goes over the line. It is a glorious try. And that's England's 10th try against New Zealand. Ha <laughs> ha. And um, the... Uh, um, what? What are you... What is that? What is that middle bit? What is this geological expedition? What? What are you doing? What is it here for? That's a good question. Glad you asked. Verses 4 to 9. What's, what is going on? Verses 4 to 9, then, the emphasis. God made man. Verse 8. Uh, and he put the man he'd formed in the garden. Verse 11, he put him in the garden to work it and take care of it. And in the middle, you get this picture of a river flowing to bless the world. So I don't know if you follow the geography of what's going on here. There's a garden. It's inside Eden. And then there's the world outside. And there's a, a river. It's an enormous river. Because um, uh, the Tigris and the Euphrates, they're only a quarter each. Massive rivers. It's a, a river flows from the top out to bless the world. And that's what mankind is to do. Let me try and persuade you a bit more. So uh, chapter 215, look at what man is told to do. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden to do what? To do two things. To work it and take care of it. To tend it and guard it. That's what he does in the garden, which is the beautiful place at the center of the earth. That's different from what he was told to do to the rest of the world. If you just flick back, chapter 1, verse 26, mankind is to rule over the fish of the sea and over all things. Verse 28, man is to fill the earth, subdue it, rule it, conquer it. The garden at the center of God's creation, that's very nice. God has made it. It's beautiful. All the trees are lovely. All you need to do in the garden, Adam, is tend it. A little bit of titivating, a little snip, 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 snip. But what we want you to do, Adam, is like my rivers, take that culture out into the rest of the uncultured world, which you need to subdue and have dominion and conquer over. Mankind is to take the blessings of the garden to the rest of the world. That's what this section is there in the middle. God puts man in the garden. God says, my river goes out to bless the rest of the world. Now you do the same. Take the culture of the garden and take it into the rest of the world. Subdue the world, organize the world, conquer the world, dominate the world. Beautifully. Do you see how it works? That, I think, is what this section is doing uh, in the middle. That's man's task, to spread the blessings of the garden to the rest of the world. Now, is that how you view your work, I wonder? That's work, according to Genesis chapters 1 and 2. Now look, Genesis chapter 3, work becomes a whole lot harder. God is going to curse the earth and make everything even much, much more difficult to do. But still, this is the aim to take God's perfect culture, to take God's way of doing things and spread them out, to subjugate to bless the world with order is that how you view it i wonder i wonder it's very easy these days if you're a lawyer to think what am i doing i'm earning a lot of money you could think that and that may, that may or may not be true depends what level you're at but uh, you might think that and that's okay but a biblical way of thinking will be i'm not just here to earn money but i'm here to redress wrongs i'm here to protect clients Oh, you could be a doctor and think, oh, that'll give me prestige. And that's okay. It's no problem with having that. But you could think a bit more than that biblically and think, I'm here to help people, heal people, serve people. 
That's what work is meant to do. Mankind was meant to spread God's blessings of paradise. Now, that's a whole lot harder, and we'll see when we get to Genesis 3. It doesn't go as it should do. But that's the aim. So when you go to work tomorrow, it shouldn't be just to advance your career, to generate income, to make yourself feel good, but in order to serve, to spread goodness. I mean, that's a, that's a very vague term. I know, I know. We're not talking just explicitly about work. But to serve, that's what mankind was put here to do on the earth. Mankind was meant to spread paradise. Third and last then, what did the Lord require? The Lord required obedience in paradise. That's verses 15 to 17. The Lord required obedience in paradise. So again, we're back to uh, God driving the action, verse 15, and uh, he commands him with two things. So the Lord God took the man, put him in the garden of Eden to work it, take care of it, and gives him two commands. The Lord God commanded the man, one, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, two, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will die. Literally, it's quite poetic in the Hebrew. Literally, it's verse 16, eating, you must eat. Verse 17, dying, you will die. There's a sort of uh, parallel, uh, parallel uh, element to it. But verse 16 is quite exciting, I think, because God commands mankind, I command you, humanity, enjoy my creation. I command you, to freely eat and freely enjoy what is there in creation. That's, that's wonderful, isn't it? What a generous God. So bizarrely, for some reason, tomorrow you get a summons to the palace, uh, as you do, and uh, the queen wants to see you and, and says, look, um, here's my credit card. You won't reach the limit. It's good. I just want you to spend and enjoy my wealth. Any paintings you see, Enjoy them. Take them home if you like them. I want you to enjoy it. Enjoy my grandeur. Enjoy. I tell you, I really want you to throw a party in Buckingham Palace. Go on. Make it a really good one. Have a great party. I'll be disappointed if you don't wear any of the royal bling. That's how she refers to it. The, um, <laughs> you, know, you know, tuck in, enjoy yourself, you know, deck out in a few uh, gems. Oh, bring your mum and dad to see me. They'll enjoy that. Um, enjoy my wealth. I command you to enjoy all that I have and spend it. And the more you spend, the more honored I will feel. That is what God says. Extraordinary, isn't it? Humanity, enjoy. I command you, freely enjoy what is there in creation. Just one restriction, verse 17. Don't eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. You'll die. Now, what is this tree? Again, it's not magical. This is not like the wicked witch in Snow White who puts poison in the apple and you eat it and you die. It's not, there's nothing magical about it. It's not even an apple. It could be a lychee. It could be a pawpaw. Who knows what the fruit is of the tree? But um, nothing magical about this. In the rest of Scripture, the knowledge of good and evil is, is the authority to decide. So it's... Um, it's the authority that a king or a father has. It's their prerogative. To have knowledge of good and evil is to have moral autonomy. And so God gives a warning here. Essentially says, if you eat that fruit, you are trusting your judgment rather than mine. And that is rebellion. And if you do that, you will die. So don't do that. 
Now, freely enjoy everything else, but don't do that. Now, pause at this moment. Why would you eat from that tree? You're living in paradise. Why would you eat from that tree and ruin everything? Well, we'll see in a couple of weeks' time, why the, why, uh, or a few weeks' time, why, why Adam and Eve would do that. But it's just human nature. God gives us an enormous number of blessings. God gives us all sorts of things. But we fixate on the one thing we haven't got and say, you are mean. Because I haven't got that job, that relationship, that level of income, that health. Stuff the fact you've given me a thousand other blessings. There is one thing I can see you haven't given me. And so I'll resent you for it. So it's very normal to humanity. But we'll come to that in a couple of weeks' time. God says, don't eat that. It will be madness. So the Lord required obedience in paradise. Three little things as we close, just to try and land it uh, a bit practically. Three little things. Uh, Let me give them to you. Understand the response of God. Don't expect paradise now, but know that Jesus' obedience will take us there. Okay, let's run through them. Understand the response of God. Understand why. Do you start to understand why God gets irritated with sin? Why in this first sin, when it took place in history, he threw mankind out of the garden? Do you start to understand that? Uh, my wife and I, we don't own the house we live in. We, um, it's rented, uh, rented property we live in at the moment. But we do own a small flat um, down in South London. We bought it when we married about a dozen years ago. And uh, so that's what we own. That's our place. And we bought it as, uh, and we moved in as a married couple and quite excited about that. And did all sorts of things to it. New windows, all fitted cupboards, a new kitchen, new bathroom. We did loads to it. Uh, we haven't lived there for a number of years now. So it's rented out to other people. Last, uh, last uh, about, no, about six months ago, uh, we were a break between tenants, and so went, we went in, and everything got repainted, um, and took care of it. Everything in the garden was made marvellous and titivated, and uh, all very well. So the, the flat was looking good. Spent a couple of days in the garden, put a new fence up. All is well. All is good. And uh, new tenants moved in. Now, back in August, I had cause to uh, drop by the flat and went in, and they've trashed it. So fitted wardrobes ripped out. Uh, new bathroom smashed, tiles smashed, bath smashed. Kitchen, lumps of plaster taken out of the wall. Garden, fence knocked down. Accumulation of shopping trolleys. Everything overgrown. And uh, I was in, uh, none of them were there. And I sat down, of course I had mixed responses. Partly I was just really sad. This is, this is our marital home where we'd lived. I partly wanted to cry. The other part of me was pretty angry. And of course, so I went home and what did I do? I wrote them a letter and said, get out. Get out. You've lost all your deposit. We'll chase you for the, some more money than that. Get out. Of course. Of course you do that. In the beginning, God created paradise paradise so do you understand when mankind rebels against him he says get out get out do you understand the response of god a second little thing don't expect paradise now don't expect it now in one sense the whole play they're very wise when she was a girl she expected the world it flew away from her reach so she ran away in her sleep of course don't expect paradise now if back then in the beginning 
when humanity was in paradise. If humanity, Adam and Eve, if they failed in paradise to obey God, what hope have we got now? We're never going to do it. We've got no chance of doing it in the here and now. So don't expect it. Don't expect paradise in this life. It is entirely normal and realistic to be homesick for heaven. That's normal. It's normal if you're a Christian. It's normal if you're not. Lots of people feel that way. And don't dismiss that longing. That longing is entirely human. It's a terrific quote. illustrates that. um, Some would have heard it before from C.S. Lewis. Creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exists. A baby feels hunger. Well, there is such a thing as food. A duckling wants to swim. Well, there is such a thing as water. Men feel sexual desire. Well, there is such a thing as sex. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is I was made for another world. You see what he's saying? When we long for something, it's because we know it's out there. When a baby screams, that's not a waste of time. It knows it needs food and it can get some. When we think there must be more, there must be more than that. Of course, it's entirely normal that we would feel that way. Because there is. Because we were made for paradise. We're no longer there. We long for it. Yeah. Don't expect, don't build it here and now. It'll always fail. But we're made for it. So we long. Understand the response of God. Don't expect paradise now. Last thing. Jesus' obedience will take us there. Do please flick me back to uh, Revelation 22. I hope even as those, uh, that uh, passage was read, you picked up much of the imagery here is being taken from Genesis and Genesis chapter 2 in particular. Here is a picture of the end of history, a picture of paradise restored perfectly. So uh, Revelation 22, let me just read a couple of those verses. Verse 1, then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, that river again. As clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. Yet blessing flows from God. It's meant to flow out into the world. That's what happens. On each side of the river stood the tree of life. A couple of trees this time. Bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. So mankind is back with the tree means back in relationship with God. But um, I don't want to perform magic in front of you, but let me try and explain what the writer here is trying to do. The word he uses for tree here, in the original Greek, it's zulon. Oh, you say, that's interesting. No, no one cares at all, do they? There's a perfectly good word for Greek that 99 times out of 100, the New Testament uses for tree, dendron. It's a, that's the tree word. Zulon is a strange word. You know the other, other times it gets used in the New Testament? It gets used throughout the book of Acts when we're told uh, uh, three times in the book of Acts, Jesus was killed by hanging on a tree. It's used by Paul in Galatians 3.13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. Peter uses it, 1 Peter 2. Jesus Christ, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. See, this tree word that's used here, it's the cross. 
to the cross. Now, the writer of Revelation is wanting us to get that. He doesn't use the normal tree word. He uses the cross word. The only other times it's used are for Jesus dying on the cross. So it's not explicit, but do you see, I mean, just what's it, drawing the Bible together. The tree, of, the tree of life, that's relationship with God, and we're shut out from it. In the future, in paradise, we'll be there again. How do you get there? Through Jesus' tree of life. By trusting in that, by trusting that he's died in your place. That's the only way to see him again, to be with him again in paradise. See, if you want to dream of para, para, paradise, yeah, of course, it's normal, it's natural. But you get there through the cross. That's the tree of life that takes you to life. And we'll be in paradise again. And it will be wonderful. Perfect. What we were meant for. With the living God. Let me lead us in prayer. Our loving Father, in many ways we've only just touched on the beautiful picture of paradise that you give us in the book of Genesis and those early chapters. But how we long to be there, you know in our hearts, we, we would try to create paradise here and now sometimes, but that is in vain because things always come and ruin it. We mustn't expect it now. But we thank you that in this picture we see a hint of the future, a hint of perfection, a perfect environment, perfect relationships, perfection with you forever. And we thank you and praise you that is possible through the tree upon which Jesus died. And so we pray we cherish that even more and trust in that as our way of getting into paradise. Amen.